please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9 are the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. Last week we had a very, I think, a very emotionally difficult passage to consider as we consider Jesus' authority over the physical world. Next week is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and we're going to be talking about God's care for life, and we're going to be specifically focusing on care for orphans and adoption, and so that's a Obviously, I call it Tissue Sunday, Um, but but, uh, I think that's good that God's people have uh, the ability to empathize with with those in need, and I'll certainly be exhorting us to do that from God's Word next week as well. One of my my favorite Sundays of the year is we we contemplate God's care for life and young life. Well, let's look at Luke chapter 9 this morning, though, as we look at Jesus sending out the 12 apostles, and if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together this morning. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, reading from the English Standard Version. Luke writes, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed, and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by others, some, that Elijah had appeared, and by others, that one of the prophets of old had arisen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. You may be seated. May we be encouraged and strengthened through God's word together this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we just sang, uh, all we have is you. You are our life. You are the very reason for our existence. We pray this morning as we turn to your word that you would convict us and and strengthen us through it. We we pray that you would give us the ability to draw closer to you. We pray that you would remove those things from our heart that are are not you and that we would worship you alone. And all things in our life would, would flow from you and from our passion for you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Sometimes you and I face tasks that are beyond our ability. A few weeks ago, someone called us and, and told us that they had brought something into our house that they, think, that they thought might have some cockroaches in it. And uh, understandably, uh, Whitney was not too excited about that news. And sure enough, a few days ago, I think it was Tuesday night, I was about to turn off the bathroom light in the kids' bathroom, and, and sure, sure enough, I see this little creature scurrying across the floor. As the man of the house, and Whitney was in bed, I squished the cockroach, and I, being the manly man that I am, I I brought the carcass of the deceased animal to my wife to show her, (laughs) look what I have done. And uh, she looked at it, and uh, instead of congratulating me, leaped out of bed and began to go into the kid's bathroom and clean it. And I, I, I I wanted to help, and so I went and got the laptop and sat on the, on the hallway and opened up the most authoritative resource I knew of to find out about German cockroaches, uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> and so I began to read off some helpful informa- information that I thought would help her as she cleaned the bathroom, no more about German cockroaches. I said, oh, sweetie, listen to this. They're about half an inch long. She said, I know. She's, I said, they're, they're, they have wings, but unable to fly. And she said, swell. And I said, oh, look at this. They can be found throughout many human settlements, like, like our house. And I, I, I went on. I said, oh, they're most active at night. That's why you had to get out of bed. Uh, and, oh, this type of cockroach can emit an unpleasant odor when excited or frightened. <laughs> I don't know if that happened. It was in the kids' restroom. So uh, I said, oh, it's also, exa- it's also very, very successful at establishing an ecological niche in buildings. It's hardy. It's resilient against attempts at pest control. 
and I, I went on and on, talked about how many eggs they lay and how many nymphs are produced from each egg, and, and uh, information that uh, was not all that helpful, really. And as I began to, to read more about the German cockroach, uh, I, I, I started laughing out loud. And uh, Whitney said, Daniel, I'm not sure what you're reading, but I, I assure you, I don't think it's very funny. I said, well, sweetie, <laughs> I think you'll find this funny. She says, I don't think so. I said, listen to this. And I read this, this part that I'd just been reading. I said, listen, this cockroach, when there's a shortage of food, can eat household items like soap, glue, and toothpaste. And Whitney said, what did you say? I said, these things eat toothpaste. And she began to laugh a little bit. Because what we realized is this, our children, we, we, think, we think our children use toothpaste to brush their teeth. We're not positive. I'm pretty certain some of them eat toothpaste. And I'm positive that whatever doesn't go into their mouth, they use to decorate the bathroom in, right? Everything is just coke coated sometimes in this toothpaste. And at that point, we realized, look, we don't need to like, be trying to kill these cockroaches. We really should establish this cockroach farm and like sell them and maybe do a cockroach circus or something because these things are here to stay if indeed they're in our house because they have plenty of toothpaste. Seemingly overwhelming task, right, to try to get rid of these bugs. You can't find them. They're resilient, all this. Now, we dealt with that. Whitney dealt with that. We went back to bed, and I opened up this, I've told you about this book that I'm reading on Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the last couple pages. In the last couple pages, I've just dealt with these bugs, and I'm a little frustrated about these bugs in my house. Last couple pages of the biography, Bonhoeffer's in the back of a Gestapo van headed to his death. And I thought, what a stark contrast. I'm kind of worried about these bugs. I'm reading about Bonhoeffer who's about to die because of his faithful proclamation of the gospel in the face of evil. And I thought about how evil this world is and how evil the, the systems of this world are. And, and despite all that evil, I can't even control cockroaches, much less have a chance of stopping the evil in the world, the, the evil systems of this world. There's injustice, there's, there's suffering in this world. There are people in my life on a yearly basis who are in my sphere of influence who enter into eternity without Christ. They're part of this worldly kingdom. There are people in my life that are part of this worldly kingdom or part of this, this system of, of the world and I'm incapable of delivering them from that kingdom. The good news, the good news is that God has a kingdom as well. And God's kingdom is a perfect kingdom. What we've seen in the Gospel of Luke so far is that God's kingdom, remember we looked at this last week, God's kingdom is a kingdom in which there are, are no physical problems. Disease, sickness, the aches and pains in life, death, those things are not a part of God's kingdom that he invites people to enter. We think about our lives and, and the relational disunity that sometimes takes place. There's, there are people in our lives who, I know it's surprising as I look out at you, I can't imagine this, but there are some people in your life who don't like you. And there are other believers with whom you, you have disagreements. And there are times in, in your life where you have these disagreements with other believers. Or, or maybe there's even just kind of this, this distance between you and other Christians. In God's kingdom, in God's kingdom, relational disunity is, is done away with. And there's perfect harmony, harmony and unity between believers, between brothers and sisters, between uh, all people. In God's kingdom, there's perfect unity. And in God's kingdom, our work becomes productive. In God's kingdom, the, the, the stress and the struggle we feel as we're engaged in work that, that isn't being uh, done well or, or for whatever reason isn't as productive as we'd like it to be, in God's kingdom, that's done away with. And most importantly... And most importantly, in God's kingdom, our relationship with God is restored perfectly. And in God's kingdom, we are able to worship him perfectly. Engage in perfect worship of God. So there's these two kingdoms. 
And the people in our lives that we know are, are often in the, the kingdom of this world and are trapped in the world system. God offers his kingdom. And our task as believers is to be ambassadors of God's kingdom and proclaim to people who are in this world's kingdom, hey, you can be a part of God's kingdom to proclaim to them the good news, to evangelize, to proclaim to them the good news that they can leave this world's kingdom and enter into God's perfect kingdom. That's our task as believers, to go to the people in our lives who need to find out about God's kingdom and proclaim the good news of God's kingdom to them to evangelize, to practice evangelism. The word evangelism literally means to to proclaim good news. Hey, good news, co-worker who is struggling with work, good news, you can be removed from this world's kingdom, not saying your circumstances will change, but you can be removed from this world's kingdom and enter into God's kingdom. Good news, brother or sister, you you can enter into God's kingdom. We proclaim that message that through repentance, through turning from sin and turning to faith in Jesus Christ, a person can enter into God's perfect kingdom. That's our job. That's our duty as ambassadors of Christ. And you and I are powerless on our own to rescue people from the kingdom of this world. We can't even control pests in our house. And yet, what we're going to see this morning, this is the main idea, what we're going to see this morning is that we are equipped by Christ to proclaim his coming kingdom. You and I have been equipped by Jesus Christ to proclaim his coming kingdom. We have the strength and the ability that God himself provides us with to proclaim his coming kingdom. What we're going to do is look at four principles as to, to think about as we think about proclaiming Christ's kingdom. And before we do, let me just kind of make a note here. Sometimes people read these nine verses, or let's say the first five verses of Luke chapter 9, and they see the things that Jesus calls his apostles to do here, his 12 disciples to do, and they say, well, Jesus, as he tells them to proclaim the kingdom, tells them that they have power over demons and can heal people. Therefore, as I engage in gospel ministry, I must also have power over demons and the ability to heal people. Or they come down to to verse uh, 3 and they see, okay, as they engaged in the task of proclaiming God's kingdom, they weren't supposed to take any possessions with them. Therefore, I must not supposed to have these possessions as well. Let me just kind of say this before we begin looking at these principles. What I want you to know is that these instructions that Jesus gives to these 12 disciples are to these 12 disciples for this particular ministry. What do I mean? Well, for example, Jesus tells them, go and heal, and you have these power over the demons. They come back in verse 10 and said, Jesus, it was exactly like you said it would be. Here's all the things that we did. Then later in chapter 9, later in chapter 9, we're going to see these same disciples didn't have the ability to remove a, a demon from a little boy. In other words, this power that they had in these first nine verses for this particular ministry, this mission that Jesus sent them on, they didn't have a few verses later. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, even though Jesus tells them here, don't take all these things with you in verse 3, at the end of Luke, Luke 22, he tells them to take those things. He told them, he goes, remember I told you not to take those things earlier? Now, as you go on this new mission, I want you to take those things. So the specific instructions that Jesus gives his disciples here are not universal. Jesus doesn't necessarily give people these same instructions today. But the thing that's the same is just like the disciples, we are to be ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. And there are some truths we see here, some theological truths about the proclamation of Christ's kingdom that are true, that were true then, that were true a thousand years ago, and are true today. And those are the principles that we're going to consider this morning as we open up God's word together Let's look at the first principle concerning proclaiming Christ's kingdom, engaging in evangelism for Christ. The first principle is this. You are an ambassador for the kingdom of God. 
In other words, you're not an independent contractor that goes out there and decides what you're going to do and where you're going to do it and what you want to say. You are an ambassador. You're an emissary. You are sent by God to do a ministry. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says that Jesus called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he, Jesus, sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. A couple things I want you to note about this task that Jesus gives them, what it means to be ambassadors. A couple things here, three things. First of all, notice this. The power and the authority to proclaim are God's power and authority. That's the first thing to note here as you think about being an ambassador. The power and the authority to proclaim are God's power and authority. Jesus is the one who calls the twelve. Jesus is the one who gives them the power and the authority. It's not intrinsic in themselves. It's bestowed upon them by Jesus. It's interesting. The disciples throughout the Gospel of Luke so far have always been with Jesus. We saw them earlier in the the Gospel of Luke as he calls them. We see them sometimes saying some silly things. Now, Jesus is, is sending them out, kind of like an internship. Okay, you've seen me do things. Now it's your turn to go and proclaim this message of my coming kingdom. And as you go and you proclaim that message of my coming kingdom, here's what you say. Tell people to repent and turn to faith in me. It's kind of like uh, whenever I first came to Bethany Baptist Church, I was, uh, let's see, I would have been about 22 years old, and it was my first week in the office at Bethany Baptist Church. And the phone rang, and we're all in the office together, and uh, I think Diane answers it, and she, Rich and Lyle and I are standing there in the office, and, and uh, Diane says, it's the funeral home. They need someone to go and, and perform a funeral. And uh, Rich looks at me and says, congratulations, you know, go get them, boy. I'm 22, I've never, I think I've seen a couple funerals, but Rich takes me aside, he says, here's what you do, now go and do it. That's what Jesus is doing here with his disciples. Okay, you've seen me do some things, we've talked about it, now go and, and do these things. It must have been very scary for these guys as they go off and they perform this ministry on their own. All of us, be we parents or or bosses or supervisors, have this task of of training others to do the ministry that's been ours. God is the one here who calls them and gives them the power and the authority to do this ministry. The power and the authority to proclaim Christ's kingdom are God's power and authority. 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter would write this in verse 10. He would say, as each of us has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards. In other words, uh, God has given every believer a gift, a spiritual gift. As we've been given that gift, use it as a steward, as someone who's been entrusted with something by someone else. He says, use it, use it as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, and to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. This ministry is God's ministry. He's the one who gives them the power and the authority to proclaim the same is true today. Our ability to proclaim God's kingdom is an ability that's given by God. The power and the authority to proclaim are his. That's the first thing we need to think about as we think about the fact that we're ambassadors. The second thing is this. The destination and the nature of, of our assignment is given by God as well. So the power and the authority are God's, but also the nature and the destination of our assignment are God's. Jesus says, I'm sending you in verse 12. I'm sending you out. Here's where you go. This is what you do. All these things, the destination, the nature of their assignment are given by God. He's the one who dictates the type of of gospel proclamation ministry that the disciples will have. He's the one who dictates the nature and the type of gospel ministry that you and I are going to have. Imagine this. Imagine if you came into work tomorrow. Your boss says, you know what? I'm tired of telling you guys what to do. Everyone's complaining about having to do expense reports or having to do this. Tell you what. You guys decide what you want to do. I'm not going to give tasks anymore. I feel like the big bad guy. You guys decide what you want to do on your own. Or kids, imagine, you know, you guys have different assignments and chores that mom and dad give you, right? And uh, at, at our home, there are some assignments and jobs that are given that, that no one likes. Imagine if mom and dad just said, you know what? 
We're tired of being the bad guys. You guys decide who takes out the trash. You guys decide who cleans up the, the floor and the table and the dishes. I don't know what would happen at your house, but I imagine at my house, the trash can would get very full as kids kind of started creatively piling things on top of it. Someone has to be the one who dictates how a home is run, how a ministry is run, how a job is run. Someone has to be in charge of assigning those tasks. Now, in our home, we don't allow the kids just to decide what jobs they want to do. Based on our supreme knowledge as perfect parents, no amens there, based upon our imperfect knowledge as loving parents, we give out tasks to do. The same is true in Christ's church. Sometimes you and I have this notion of ministry. We have this idea that uh, because I want to do a ministry or because I, I want to engage in gospel proclamation in some way, that's, that's what should happen. That's what God should allow me to do. God says, no, that's not how ministry works. Ministry works as I assign people through gifts and spiritual gifts and abilities, the types of ministries that they're going to do. That's true throughout Scripture. 1 Timothy, for example, the end of 1 Timothy, uh, I identify a lot with Timothy sometimes. Uh, Timothy, this pastor, friend of, of Paul's, this young mentor that, that Paul, Paul was a mentor to this young pastor, and Paul has to tell Timothy sometimes, look, I don't care what ministry you want to do. Remember the ministry that God gave you. So at the end of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, Timothy is told by Paul, look, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is his testimony before Pont who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Timothy, this is the ministry you've been called to. You may not like it. There may be some aspects you say, you know what, I'd, I'd rather not do that. Paul says, it doesn't matter. This is God's ministry that he's entrusted to you. The church has laid its hand on, hands on you. You do it. The same is true we see throughout Scripture for missionaries. Acts chapter 13, and the Antiochian church lays hands on Paul and Barnabas and says, this is the gospel ministry that you're entrusted with. Go off, and they, they do the first missionary journey. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, the church lays its hands on these deacons and say, look, this is the job that you've been given to do. The point is this. You and I do not have the authority in and of ourselves to say, I'm going to go do this ministry. I'm going to do this ministry. You and I have been sovereignly placed in positions of ministry by God. And we determine those ministries in conjunction with, with other godly people and then we do those ministries. God may have placed you in a unique position to proclaim his kingdom to people. You say, you know, I, I don't really want to go share the gospel with my, my co-worker. Not your call. God has sovereignly placed you in a position to speak into the life of someone that no one else has that ability to do. God confirms his leading through our abilities and through our giftings. And it's not our place to say, I don't like that ability. I don't like that gifting. I want to do something else. You know, I don't mean to talk bad about other staff members, but I'm going to. Mike Chambers seems like a nice guy, right? Mike Chambers, sometimes in my very presence, in my, I will be in the room. And he will come in, and I'll be with Ben Davidson, and he will look at Ben Davidson and said, how would you like to sing a special song? He will say nothing to me ever about singing special music. Why would he do such a terrible thing? Because he's heard me sing. He knows that my ability to proclaim Christ's kingdom is not through special music. God has given each of us gifts and ability and, and sovereignly placed us in positions of proclaiming his kingdom. And it's not our task to say, God, I don't like this assignment. It's our task to say, Lord, give me the strength and the ability to do that. We also see here, not only 
It's a power and the authority to proclaim the kingdom of God, God's power and authority. Not only is he the one that determines the destination and the nature of our assignment, look here, he's also the one that determines the actual message. The message is God's as well. He says at the end of verse 2, this is what you're supposed to proclaim. Proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. In other words, the disciples can't say, you know what, uh, this town could really use a nicer synagogue. We're going to do a workshop on how to build a synagogue. And they, they gather everyone together. Let's talk about a synagogue building. They don't come into a, a, a town and say, you know what, the, the children here seem very unruly. We're going to do a parenting seminar in this kingdom or this, in this uh, city or this town or this village. Jesus says, this is what you proclaim. Proclaim my kingdom. It's the same message that you've heard me proclaim, that people need to repent of their sins and turn to faith in God, and that God's kingdom is coming, and I'm the one who's going to establish it. That's the message that you proclaim. The disciples are bound by Christ's authority to proclaim his words and to hear and proclaim his voice. This past week, I just received uh, uh, my, my book back from the publisher, and I keep having this fear. I think the publishers, maybe, like, maybe they just haven't read it yet. They're going to look at my book. It's, it's a book on orphan care ministry, for those of you who don't know, and they're going to look at it and say, man, this is terrible, and uh, email me back and say, uh, we're not going to publish that. In fact, you owe us like $10,000 for wasting our time or something. But what they did is, for the first time, they emailed me back, and they emailed me the documents of, of the editing that they had done to the book, they, you know, uh, mistakes that I'd made where I'd worded things wrongly or something. And what amazed me was this. In sentences that I'd messed up, they made some changes. They turned some things around, they'd, but they still kept my voice. They used my vocabulary, and they were very careful to preserve it and make sure it was, it was still my wording, even in sentences they changed. In fact, there are only two places that I caught in the entire book where I said, boy, uh, this is not what I would say. One was kind of a theological issue, uh, and I said, boy, you've, you've, you've added one word here that totally changes the theological meaning of the sentence. Forget it. And the other is they, incentered, they inserted this phrase, uh, the, the phrase, seriously now. They took out some of my wonderfully dry humor and inserted the phrase, seriously now. So either <laughs> I need to start using that phrase, <laughs> seriously now. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't know. Uh, seriously now. Uh, or, or I told them, to take this. I would never say this. I, I, you know, they, they did a great job most of the book, but they just inserted a, a weird phrase there. I don't know what caused them to do that. What they rightly recognized, and I've never dealt with this before, so I was very impressed, that they wanted it to be, even when they made changes, they wanted to keep the author's voice. It's not their work. The editor, I could tell the editor sometimes disagreed with my theology on some things, but the editor recognized that their, their task was to keep my voice and my words there. You and I, as we proclaim the kingdom of God, may, if it was left to us, say some things differently. But our job, our responsibility is to proclaim God's kingdoms, kingdom. We are his ambassadors. We are not our own independent contractor that just does whatever we desire to do. Here's what I'd like to do as application for this first point. What I want you to do is... Just for a moment, think about the people that God has sovereignly placed in your life who are not a part of his kingdom. Who are the people in your life that are not part of God's kingdom, that God has sovereignly placed you in their life to be a proclaimer of his kingdom? Maybe it's a coworker who is just, just struggling with the things of this world, and you sense this internal struggle that's going on in this well, that's not the way that they want to live. I know, I know that they need to hear about God's kingdom and about how through repentance and, and faith in Jesus Christ that can be a part of this kingdom. Or maybe it's a, a sibling. You have a brother or sister who, who just doesn't know the Lord. You say, boy, I know that God has placed me in their life to proclaim the gospel to them. It may, it may be uncomfortable. I may not like it, but I know God has placed me there for that. God, give me the strength and ability to do so. Maybe it's someone at school a kid in your class who, who just has, has done some, some things, and you're like, boy, I, I recognize that kid is hurting. I wouldn't naturally talk to that, that kid, but God has placed me in that girl or boy's life to tell them about, about Jesus. We 
are ambassadors for the kingdom of God. That's the first thing we see in this text. Secondly, secondly, we see this. Your needs for life and ministry are met by God through his people. It's interesting what Jesus gives them. The first instruction here in verse 3 says to them this. Uh, Take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And don't have two tunics. In other words, as you go, travel super light. Don't take an extra staff. Don't take an extra tunic. Don't take uh, extra food or bread or water. Just go. Just go. What I think Jesus, in fact, later in Luke chapter 22, is he tells them, he asks them, hey, remember what happened here in Luke 9? He doesn't say Luke 9. Remember what happened when I sent you out? He says, did you lack for anything? They said, nothing. We didn't lack for anything as we went out. What Jesus is forcing them to see here as they go out and they engage in this ministry is that God is the one who supplies the needs, needs of his people as they minister. And God meets the needs of his people as they minister through his people. You know, this is such a crucial concept, and I think it's so hard for those of us in this North American culture to grasp this idea that God meets our needs through other believers, through his people. I think there are a couple barriers to us understanding this principle. One barrier is this. We are very private individuals. There's no sense of community sharing, especially as it comes to our financial situation. There's a lack of willingness to be transparent about our needs, and especially those needs that might help us be better proclaimers of God's gospel. You know, all life is ministry, and as as we're striving to be gospel proclaimers, there are things that other believers could do physically in our life that would help us as we proclaim the kingdom of God. The other barrier The other barrier here is not just that we are very introverted and not very transparent with our needs. The other barrier is that we aren't proactive in seeking to meet other people's needs. We believe that we're kind of like these individual outposts in a battle. And maybe our outpost has a lot of resources, our family has a lot of resources, and we don't recognize that God has placed us on the front lines so that we can meet the physical needs of the other soldiers around us. Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 are great examples of how the early church understood their ministry. In in Acts chapter 2, it says that they devoted themselves to the the teaching of the apostles and fellowship. And it says they, uh, they had all things in common, verse 44. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We see the same thing in Acts 4. It says, verse 32, they were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, we know from later epistles, you know, from the book of James, for example, and from uh, 1 Timothy, that this doesn't mean that uh, a person sold everything they had and, and now they no longer had any possessions. We know that there were still rich people and poor people among the, the people of God. But the point is this, a, a rich person wasn't to say, my possessions are my possessions and not your possessions. The rich person, Paul tells Timothy, is to say, look, God has given me resources so that I can use them for his glory. And by the way, that's what the poor person is supposed to do as well. That's what happens with the churches in Macedonia. They, they give out of their poverty. All life, all ministry is done for God's glory with the resources that he has equipped us with. I was reading a report from 2004 It was about the Iraq war and and how close we came to some very terrible things happening in those initial weeks of the war. Remember how fastly the the troops moved through Iraq. One of the great problems, perhaps you remember this, one of the great problems is as they they advanced so quickly, the supply lines, to get supplies to these soldiers on the front lines, the supply lines became very long and, and dangerous. It was hard to to make sure, in fact, some of the, the troops didn't have all the meals that they needed to eat because the supply lines were, were so long and, 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 and treacherous. You and I are all soldiers on the front lines proclaiming Christ's kingdom. And we, as we proclaim the kingdom of Christ, are to see our resources as, as battle supplies. The application here, I think, is very simple. 
you and I must be proactive in meeting the physical needs of, of other believers and be transparent about our needs as we proclaim the kingdom. We view our material possessions as, as battle assets. So you're an ambassador for the kingdom of God as you proclaim the gospel. Your needs for your life and your ministry are going to be met by God through his people. The third principle here is this. Your ministry is protected by your integrity. Your ministry is going to be protected by your integrity. The second instruction that Jesus gives them, we see in verse 4, he says, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from that house, depart, from there, depart. Jesus is giving his disciples a warning as they engage in this, in this gospel ministry, this proclaiming of the kingdom. And the warning is a cultural warning. Oftentimes in this day, a, a, a philosopher would, would come into a town, and he would go from house to house, and he would beg for food. He'd say, I, you know, I'm going to be teaching in a synagogue or over in this location. I need some food to sustain me, and they'd give him some food. He'd go, and then he'd come back, and then he'd ask another house for food, and he'd go, come teach, and come back to another house. I need some food. I need some food, and go throughout the community. Oftentimes, overstaying is welcome. Also, what we see sometimes is that a philosopher would go, he would stay at a home, and, and then if he found a, a better home, a nicer place to stay, he would leave the, the benefactor there and, and go stay at the, the more wealthy benefactor. Jesus is saying this, you need to be beyond reproach in the integrity of your ministry. As you proclaim my kingdom, people need to not be confused about your motive. This is why so often throughout Paul's ministry, in fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see this. Throughout Paul's ministry, he is so careful to make sure that people don't misunderstand his passion and the purpose of his ministry. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he, he says, You remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses and also God, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, and you became believers. He says, as we proclaimed to you the gospel of God, we were afraid that you would misunderstand our motives, and so we refused to take any money from you. We worked on our own. Night and day we toiled as we proclaimed the gospel to you so that there would be no questioning of what our motives were. Last summer, there was an expose that that came out from uh, a Dallas-Fort Worth news uh, station. The ABC affiliate down there ran an expose of a, a pastor of a megachurch in the Dallas area. Now, the interesting thing is this. They didn't accuse the pastor of anything illegal. They didn't even, even accuse the pastor of anything that was, was necessarily sexually immoral or any of those things that sometimes you, you see these exposés of, of pastors and these big megachurches on. None of those things. Here, here's what this TV station had a problem with, the lavishness of his lifestyle. Now, think about the concept here. It's a secular TV station. Presumably, they don't go to his church. His church knew his compensation, or the leaders in his church knew his compensation package. They're the ones who said it. And yet, the TV station looks at the lavishness of his lifestyle and runs this news story. Now, Think about this, too. This guy is the leader of a, you know, I don't know, $100 million a year annual budget church. I mean, if you look at a person in the secular world and looked at their compensation package, it might even be, be higher. But the point is this. Even a secular television station looked at his lifestyle and said, there's something wrong about that. And many of the people of his church agreed. What place does this lavishness, this million-dollar compensation package have in the life of a person who's proclaiming the kingdom of God? Now, you may have heard that I don't like the health and wealth gospel very much. I won't get into it this morning. I'm going to be calm this morning. But the danger, the danger of the health and wealth gospel, the proclamation of material possessions, is real for any of us. This pastor in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, his leaders were certainly guilty of not 
protecting the gospel ministry. Even though nothing illegal was taking place, something unseemly was taking place, and it undermined the gospel proclamation of this church. Their ministry wasn't protected by their integrity. Understand this, as you engage in ministry, oftentimes people are going to have a desire to physically help you out with material possessions. You must be very careful as you watch your integrity. A few years ago, I think it was about eight or nine years ago, a, a, a person came over to our house on New Year's Eve. There was a, a, a gas leak in our house or something, and so this repair person came over. We're talking. The person goes to Grace Presbyterian Church, and so we're talking about some church things and, and just having a good time of fellowship. He goes out to his car to get a tool. He comes back in, and he hands me a $5 bill. I said, what, what's this for? He said, well, I found this $5 bill on a curb, and I figured God must want me to give it to you. Okay. Now, I took it. No. <laughs> I, I, no, I don't. But eventually, he, you know, I, I did take it. I've kept that $5 bill in my office as a reminder how, how careful we must be as we accept material possessions from people to do ministry, all of us. How carefully we must watch our lives in the area of material possessions because there's a natural tendency of people, first of all, to donate and, and to give things for, for ministry reasons, but also there's a, people are watching you. They're watching your integrity in how you handle yourself in the world out there. If you're going to be a person who proclaims the kingdom of God, know this, your lack of integrity in the workplace, your lack of integrity in the home, your lack of integrity in your personal relationships can be a crushing blow to kingdom work in your life. Your lack of integrity in your personal, professional, and family life can be a crushing blow to kingdom work. Your children hear you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ they look at a lack of integrity in your life, and they say, I don't buy it. Your coworkers hear you talking about Jesus Christ. They look at the way that you treat your employer. They look at the way that you turn in your expense reports. They look at the, the lack of productivity you have in the workplace, and they say, I don't buy it. God calls us to be people of integrity, beyond integrity, so that we can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with integrity because people are watching you and your failure to operate in integrity will be a crushing blow to the kingdom work in your life. That's the third principle here as we think about our ministry of proclamation. The final, the final principle is this. You cannot compromise God's message in order to win popular acclaim. You cannot compromise God's message in order to win popular acclaim. It's a losing battle. And so often we try to straddle the fence. We say, look, I want people to, to view me as, as a cool guy, a, a hip guy, and yet at the same time I need to, to proclaim the gospel. And boy, I, I don't want people to think I'm weird, but I need to tell them the gospel. And so we, we try to compromise the gospel message because the gospel message because we want to be viewed as acceptable by people who are rejecting the gospel message. Understand this, it's not possible. Jesus tells the disciples, the third instruction is this, if the town doesn't receive you, in other words, if you come and you proclaim the kingdom of God, he says, the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. You need to, to turn from your sin. You need to repent of your sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is coming. And they say, that's ridiculous. Jesus isn't the Messiah. He's not the one ushering in the kingdom. They reject that message. This is what he says to do. This is powerful. He says, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. In other words, you're leaving the town and you're shaking off the dust from your sandals. That was an action that was done by Jews as they left a pagan town. And what they were essentially saying is, you guys aren't a part of the kingdom of God. A Jew, as they left a pagan territory, would say, I'm unclean because my feet have stepped in your town. You're not part of God's covenant people, and I'm cleansing myself as I leave you. 
Jesus turns it on its head. What the disciples are saying as they leave is, you people are not part of God's covenant plan. And you're not part of God's covenant plan. You're not truly Jewish because you've rejected God's Messiah. It is not enough any longer to be culturally Jewish. It's not enough to simply say, well, I, I'm, I'm uh, genetically Jewish. I'm, I'm part of God's covenant people because I was born in the Jewish community. God is saying, Jesus is saying through his instructions here, you are telling people you are in danger because you've rejected the Messiah. It was an uncompromisingly, it was an uncompromising message and to some, harsh. But people needed to understand the seriousness of rejecting Jesus and his proclamation of the kingdom. And so Jesus says, as you leave the community, shake the dust off your feet. It wasn't done lightly, but as a warning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the word of the cross is what? To those who are perishing. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. It sounds crazy. It sounds absurd. It, it sounds insane. But it's a message that the Jew and the Gentile must hear and appropriate in their own lives by faith. We see the reaction. We see the reaction to Jesus' ministry in the following verses. Evangelicals as well are, are going to be mocked as they proclaim God's kingdom. In fact, I, I got a, a book recently. Someone gave me a book uh, this week. Uh, I think it's called, um, I forget the title of it, but it's essentially it's, it's, a, it's a, a book about, it's kind of a satire, it's, it's a spoof on evangelicals. It's basically like how to spot evangelicals, like a, like a bird watching book, how to spot evangelicals. And some of it is uh, scathingly hilarious, you know, and it, you're laughing at yourself, but it's very funny. But some of it's very sad, too. Here's, here's, a, here's a chapter entitled, What Evangelicals Believe, Plus a Master List of Who's Going to Hell. It says, Evangelicals believe in many things, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, church attendance, Fox News, abstinence, personal holiness, toupees, leisure suits, mission work, dockers, golf, spanking their children, early and often, and dinner. Okay, It's kind of funny so far. But then they say this, and, and this is the sad part, right? It says, but the natural part, the natural starting point for identifying evangelicals by their belief is their best-known doctrine, hell. Then it goes on to just kind of mock evangelicals for proclaiming the gospel and trying to save people from hell. It's interesting what happens next here in Luke 9. It says they depart, they preach the gospel, they're healing everywhere. Herod the Tetrarch hears about all that's going on. He's perplexed. It says that he sought to see Jesus. Now, here's the point. Here's the point. Are you willing to boldly proclaim a message in love? Are you boldly willing to proclaim this, this message, not compromising God's message, not your own message, but God's message, in order to love people even when you may not receive their popular claim? I'd like the men to come forward and as we prepare to, to pass out communion here. As they come forward, I, I want you to just think about this in your own heart. You know, in 1 Corinthians, as Paul talks about communion and, and partaking of the Lord's Supper together, he says, as, as often as you drink this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right now, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together here in just a moment. And I'd, I'd ask you to, as, you, as, you begin, as they begin to pass it out, to, to take that and just meditate on this. We are going to proclaim Christ's death as we partake of the Lord's Supper together now. But even more importantly, or as importantly, we have the responsibility to proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection as we go out, as we interact with people in our community. Communion is open to all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You need not be a member. I encourage you, as you, partake of, as you prepare to partake of communion, that you would commit in your heart, who are the people in my life 
that God is encouraging me to proclaim his kingdom to. Just think about that as we, as we meditate on that together. Who are the people that God is calling me in my life to proclaim his kingdom to? Perhaps it's someone in your family, a family member who you know is hurting. Uh, perhaps God is calling you to proclaim his kingdom to a co-worker that's been very antagonistic toward you and your faith, and God is calling you to persevere and stand firm and continue to proclaim to them the need to repent and turn to faith in Christ. Maybe it's a, a spouse, a, a loved one who has been very hard-hearted toward the gospel, and God is calling you to persevere in proclaiming the gospel to them. Now, if you'd prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together with me, let's take off the, the first layer there. Share, prepare to take the bread with me. Paul tells us that on the night that he was betrayed, after he'd given thanks, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is in remembrance of you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you prepare to take the cup with me, Paul tells us the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, you and I, together corporately as a church, have proclaimed the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be faithful as we leave this assembly to evangelize, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, proclaiming his death and resurrection to a lost world. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you that through his death, in his resurrection, we have a relationship with you and the ability to enter into fellowship with you. We pray that you would cause us to boldly proclaim that message of faith in you. And Father, if there's some here this morning who haven't placed their faith in you, that you would allow them to do that through the working of your spirit. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.